uh, son, may I come in? Okay. It'll only, it'll, maybe it'll be more than a minute. But. Okay, son. I, I think it's time that we have the talk. Have you heard of the phrase, the birds and the bees? Well, it's like this. Oh, right, we're at church. <laughs> um, maybe you've had that talk before with someone. But there's another talk that maybe we need tonight. And it's... Christian, are you, are you good for a minute? Can we talk? We need the talk. Have you heard of the trees and the leaves? No? Oh. Well... God made humankind in his image. And there was this great harmony and relationship between him and the humans. But the humans, well, they made a blunder, as we tend to do. And, and they, they did something that God didn't want them to do. And, and then they heard God coming. And rather than saying, Woohoo! God is here! He can fix our problem. They said, Oh no! God is here! What do we do? And they went behind the trees to hide. And they took leaves off the trees and made for themselves clothes to cover their nakedness. And God had to call them out. And then, and then in this brilliant move, the man, Adam, blames two people in one sentence. It's not my fault. It's the woman who you gave me. That's, that's the trees and the leaves. And it's something that's going on still as we say, oh no, it's God. And we try to hide and cover. Now I know what you're thinking. There's an obvious connection between the birds and the bees and the trees and the leaves. Not only does it sound like it's a poem, but, well, both are very important talks. Both are very difficult talks. And both involve human nakedness. Adam and Eve realized they were naked, which meant they were exposed. They were suddenly self-conscious of something that was wrong. And that drove them away from God. Brothers and sisters, tonight, I want us to have the talk of the trees and the leaves because there's a lot of immature Christianity that doesn't understand what to do in relationship with their father when they sin against him. Shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, condemnation can drive us to the trees and the leaves. But that's not the right direction. You know you have major problems when the presence of God is a problem. You know you have major problems when the presence of God is a problem. Adam and Eve said... Oh no, God is coming. They should have said, Whew, someone who can fix our problem is coming. The trees and the leaves teaches us how to run away, how to hide. And the minute that the name God or Jesus or coming to church or opening the Bible or entering into prayer or hearing a sermon, the minute any of, or being around other Christians, the minute any of these things bring a sense of, I want to get out of here. When God is a problem, you have major problems. We're going to read the opening verses of chapter 7, and we'll get into going through it. The word that came to Jeremiah 
from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, the former temple temple location, which is now a heap of rubbles. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim, also known as the northern kingdom of Israel. As Jeremiah enters into the temple courtyard, this is the major societal, um, civic, religious center of the people of Jerusalem. And he enters into this very heartbeat of Jerusalem, This temple building is the status symbol of who they are. It's their identity. It is very similar to uh, the Capitol building or the White House or the American flag. And what Jeremiah does on these grounds is akin to somebody bombing the White House or burning the American flag. It is considered treason. The words he utters on this sacred ground, which is not only God's place, but it's what makes Israel Israel. And he's basically condemning them and their attitude about the temple. Look with me at verse 4, when he says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. That threefold repetition means that this is a phrase that was passed along. It was in the canon of phrases that the people used. And it was shorthand for things like, 
as long as God is in the temple, as long as we have the temple, we are good. He will never let us be defeated. Nothing bad can happen to us because he's here. We have our good luck charm. We come in at least once a week and rub the altar and we're good. Now, they're not entirely wrong. Do you remember what God told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? He told him, look, David, your son is going to build me a temple and he will sit on the throne and his sons after him will sit on the throne forever. And out of that, they took it a little bit too far. The teachers of Israel began to say, See, Solomon's temple is here. God will not let anything happen to us. We're good. Even if these long lists of terrible things that Jeremiah accuses them of in verse 9, stealing, murdering, committing adultery, swearing falsely, making offerings to that dreaded God Baal, and going after other gods that you have not known. Even if we do all of these things over here, we are a-okay because... The temple of God is here. We're covered. So, Israel is practicing the trees and the leaves here. See what's happening? The ordinary life, we are villains by night, gets covered and masked by their going to the temple and saying, ah, but we're saints by day. And as long as we are going to the temple, and as long as we're practicing the rituals and the worship services of the temple, we can keep saying we're sorry about all that stuff and keep on moving. That's why Jeremiah says in verse 11, has this house, the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers or a den of thieves, or a cave of criminals in your eyes. I love the phrase, a cave of criminals. Here's what's happening. The temple is not the place, to understand what Jeremiah is saying, the temple is not the place where the crime is happening The temple is the cave where the criminals run to, to hide. So out here, they are committing their crimes. And then they're like, oh, let's go to the temple and hide. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't it good that they're running toward God? Isn't it good that they're coming to him in the midst of their crime? Yes, if they're coming to God. If they're truly coming to the presence of the relational God of the universe who loves us too much to leave us where we are. Friends, do you know where the easiest place in the world is to hide from God? Adam and Eve chose the trees. Jonah chose a boat that took him somewhere way out in the ocean. And when a storm came, he thought, oh, God still found me. So he tries to go under the water where surely no God would be. That was actually a Jewish concept that God was not in the underwater realm. They thought all kinds of monsters came out of the water. So Jonah's like, I'll go in there. God still finds him with a fish. 
and still gets them to Nineveh. There are stories of people trying to escape God and they just can't get out of his presence. But these Israelites have the best attempt yet to escape God. Let's go to the temple. Let's go to worship services. Let's go to the sermons. Let's go to prayer. That's actually one of the best places to escape God. Because you go to these things thinking you're, you're pleasing this angry deity who is upset about your crimes. You come to these activities and think, all right, cool, I'm going to appease him. I'm going to make things right. All the while ignoring the God who's actually just saying, why don't you just come and we'll work on transforming you? You would rather say, no, 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 I will say my prayers, I will sing the songs, I will read the Bible verses and answer the questions and have discussions and all that stuff and I'll put my money in the offering and then I'm going to go back to life. Because if I can control worship and the actions I do of this, this service, then I don't have to let God control me. So the den of thieves, the den of robbers, the cave of criminals, the point that Jeremiah is making is, yes, you're doing crimes, which is not out of the ordinary, by the way. All of you are criminals. Me too. I'm not the cop here. <laughs> we are all criminals. The point and problem Jeremiah has, the emphasis is the cave. That worship has become the cave that these criminals flee to, to escape the God who might judge their crime. Just like Adam runs to the trees. What do you and I do? We're all aware of our crimes. And you know, we're so aware that it may even happen on a subconscious level where you're not actually articulating or even thinking about the wrongs you've done. You might even be deceiving yourself and thinking you're a decent chap. But on a subconscious level, there is so much guilt and shame and desire to flee from the presence of the Almighty that you will run to the Bible as long as you can read it without letting it speak to you. You will run to prayer as long as you can pray and pray and throw all of your requests at God as long as there's no space for God to speak to you in silence. You will come to worship and sing the songs and request the songs that you love as long as you can sing with them and the songs you like and it's the style of worship that you like because that way you have some say in worship rather than letting God be the one to move and direct you in worship. Worship in all of its forms can be misused to become a cave where we hide from God. Because we're aware of our crimes. Because deep down inside all of us, there's this secret knowledge that maybe I still have a part to play in fixing myself. I don't want God to show me my errors. I don't want to see myself as I am. So I will do the religious stuff. Now, if you're in a real place of worship, True worship, true, real worship is an encounter with God that is done in, as Jesus said, spirit and truth. Emphasis on truth and in tonight. If we're actually in worship, you will be before God in truth, which means he becomes a mirror of truth in which you see who you really are. And most of us, in the presence of a mirror that doesn't lie to us, 
A mirror that doesn't flatter, say, oh, yeah, yeah, all the good things about you, forget the bad things. A mirror that makes you look more righteous. You could think skinny or what beautiful or whatever things, but like, let's be honest. We want to be known as we do good things. We're a solid soul. We're important in the world. God needs us. But when we're in front of that mirror, we do not like who we see because it tells us you're not who you think you are. So we avoid the actual presence of God. Because isn't it so much easier to sing the songs you like, to pray the requests that are on your heart, and to read your favorite passages, and to hear the preachers that give you, I don't know what people like. That's so funny, I don't know what people like. But um, isn't it so much easier just like, that guy makes me feel like I can conquer the world, believe in myself. These verses, oh, they never convict me. These songs are so just poppy and easygoing. Isn't that so much easier than sitting before the mirror of the presence of God and seeing that you are not who you think or wish you were? So what Israel could have done in the temple was they could have committed their crimes and then run straight to the temple, realized, wow, this is worse than we thought it was, and then said, God, how do we change? Help us, lead us forward. But instead, they come in and say, the temple of Yahweh, Yahweh's our God, yeah, woo And then they go back, commit their crimes, come back into the cave again. The worship hideout. Oh, man. Sorry, I'm getting really severe here. But I hope, I hope, I hope that Sunday night, when we gather here, that this is not a worship hideout. That we're using worship as a cover from God. But that we are courageous enough to come before him and to let him say, yeah, it's bad. But just as the wise men come to worship Jesus and leave a different way than the way they came, Matthew chapter 2, So every time we come to worship God in spirit and truth with a real encounter, we will always leave differently than we came. And so, yes, there's some awkwardness. There can be some real, ooh, when you actually come before God rather than hiding from God. Because, yep, you're naked, you're exposed, and we don't like that. But you cannot change until you do. Because you'll keep lying to yourself. You'll keep trusting these deceptive words. But I'm in the temple. I'm in the temple. I'm in the temple. A cave of criminals. I really hope that this is more like a cave of Christians. Maybe let's just drop the word cave altogether. This is, this is a confession of criminals. This is the transformation of sinners. That's better. Not a place to hide and pretend, oh, no, 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 no. I'm only a villain by night. I'm a saint by day. All right, opposite of Batman. Well, that's how Jeremiah starts. Now, can you, can you see why he wasn't a very well-liked prophet? He not only says these things, but he actually has the audacity to come onto the temple platform and say, none of you are worshiping, right? And then he says, and then he says, if you don't amend your ways, 
Go and look at Shiloh and see what happened there because that's going to come here. Now, Shiloh was their very, very first place where they had the tabernacle built, the tent before the temple. When Israel went into the promised land, um, they first set up camp in Shiloh and there they divided the land between the tribes. Shiloh in Jeremiah's day was now a heap of rubble because the Philistines came in and conquered it. And Jeremiah is saying, if you think that just because we have the temple, we're invincible, I need you to go look at Shiloh. Field trip, everybody. Let's come and see the rebels because Jerusalem will look like this if we stop, if we don't stop using the temple or worship as a hideout from God. It's going to happen. And that is what the people said. That's blasphemy. That's treachery. You can't say that. Because you're now, you're now saying something that the establishment says about God and you're saying the opposite of it. The establishment, the crown and the priests and the other prophets were all saying, God will never let us fall. We are eternally secure in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah came and said, if you guys don't actually come and encounter God in your naked criminality, we are not secure here. And he's the only one saying this. You know how easy it is to call heretic to the only person saying something that everybody else isn't saying? That's not what seminaries teach us. Now, of course, in our context, it's very good to stay orthodox <laughs> and within the large umbrella of teaching. But just to give you an example of what Jeremiah, how it comes across to them, this is like that guy. We don't know what to do with him. He doesn't fit our labels. He doesn't adhere to our message. So we'll see later. Actually, Jeremiah is so jumbled that there's going to be a lot of prophecies, and then we're going to actually come back to the scene. I think it's chapter 21. We're going to come back to the scene, and there they're actually going to arrest Jeremiah. We don't see that tonight, but um, that's how upset they are about his words. Now, God wants to drive this home. It's one thing to say, it's going to be bad if you choose to disobey God because the way out of God's will is just bad. It's one thing to say that, and I think we all know that, right? You wouldn't be here if you actually thought that following God was worse for you. So we all intuitively know that life is better when we follow God. So did these Jews. So what Jeremiah now has to do is use graphic language to describe what it will feel like and look like if they stop worshiping God in spirit and truth. So in verse 16... As for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. In other words, God's like, they've gone far enough. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. How nice. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. It is, is it I whom they provoke, declares Yahweh? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Do you remember when Jesus gave warnings to Jerusalem and said, look, you're susceptible to the fire that will not be quenched. Jeremiah is the originator of these words, and Jesus echoes Jeremiah. Look how graphic it gets. Thus says Yahweh, verse 21, the God of Israel, 
add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not... I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. In other words, when I took them out of Israel, I first asked them simply to obey me. The whole sacrifices and offerings came after I asked them to obey my voice. So then thinking they're amending their ways by killing a cow and burning it, they're wrong. They have to listen to me. That's what I'm after. Um, so... He keeps on saying, look, they're, I've just, I'm done with them. And then in verse 30 is where it gets graphic. So, verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares Yahweh. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and none will frighten them away. Because there will be no one left to frighten the vultures away. They will all be dead. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the land shall become a waste. What's described there is there's this valley right outside of Jerusalem. Um, in, in Greek, it translates to Gehenna, which is actually what Jesus is sometimes referring to when he talks about fire and stuff, is he's talking about this valley in which they would constantly be dumping trash and bodies that weren't buried to just be eaten up by the fires, because that was how ancient people got rid of their toxic waste. They didn't have Mr. Rains to take care of it for them. So um, they would throw it in there. And they chose this valley because this valley originally was the place where they offered their sons and daughters for child sacrifice in Jeremiah's time. And so Jeremiah is saying, oh, you offer your children here. Guess what's going to happen? When the Babylonians come and invade, all of the bodies will just be dumped and bulldozed into this valley. And they won't even be buried. The vultures and the bugs and the worms and everything will just take care of it naturally. So that, by, just to connect it to Jesus, that's actually the valley that Jesus is talking about. Um, of course, he's using that as a metaphor for, um, he uses the word hell, and that's a metaphor. So what Jeremiah is describing is not just the eternal place of hell. He's talking about, guys, hell is coming on earth if we don't get our ways straight. It'll be that bad. So... At that time, chapter 8, verse 1, declares Yahweh, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served. Remember, they baked cakes for the queen of heaven, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried they shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares Yahweh of hosts. So, that's why Jeremiah was put in prison. 
How would you like his job? So what happens after this is Jeremiah now goes into some poems in which he and God are having some chats. God's talking a lot about their sin and treachery. Then Jeremiah has these moments of absolute grief and heartbreak. Can you imagine? You're the bearer of this message. You are seeing visions of the the graphic carnage to come. Okay? He is carrying the grief of God. This prophet is burdened. And so let's now turn to some hope. Trust me, we're not going to end with this dark, savage part. We're going we're gonna to look at how Jesus lifts us out of this cave of criminals, out of the worship hideout. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 18 this is where we see Jeremiah's reaction to what he, to what he preached. He says, 818, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. So the people are saying, Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Then God responds, Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? Then the people respond, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Jeremiah continues, For the wound of my daughter, of the daughter of my people, is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. So what you see here is that we have this, clearly as we get to the end of what we just read, it becomes God's words, doesn't it? Which then makes you question all the way up to the top. Was this Jeremiah's grief or was this God's grief? And I, I read a variety of commentators. I'm like, hmm, this is really interesting. Um, and they're split down the middle about whose grief this is. I'm like, this is God's grief. And others are like, this is Jeremiah's grief that he's expressing. And then some go in the middle and say, I think the point is that you're not supposed to be able to distinguish God's grief from Jeremiah's grief. And I, I, either way, I think that Jeremiah is speaking because he's feeling this. But he could also be feeling this because God's broken heart has been poured upon Jeremiah. God gives Jeremiah visions of what's to come. God gives Jeremiah words to say and the courage to stand in the temple. Why can he not also give him grief that he himself is feeling? And if God is feeling the grief Jeremiah is describing, this is one of the most amazing and rare glimpses of God we get in scripture because here the God Almighty 
the warrior of Israel who took down Egypt, created the world out of nothing, is broken with grief. He's a vulnerable God. Now, some people, and I read the commentators, some of them are like, can't, we just can't accept a vulnerable God. I was like, well, what about Jesus? Jesus wept. First verse I learned. Luke, chapter 19. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, weeps over the city of Jerusalem, and then goes into the temple Do you remember what he said when he went into the temple and cleansed it? You have turned my father's house, which shall be called a house of prayer, into a den of thieves or robbers or a cave of criminals. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah. You also notice what Jesus is doing? He's embodying the grieving, weeping God of Jeremiah as he weeps over the same city that we see this God weeping over. Yes, God is vulnerable. God does weep for the world. And so while we read Jeremiah's fire and brimstone sermon, we cannot stop there because we cannot leave God at being this angry, maleficent being who's like, I'm just done with these sinners, these cave of criminals. I'm just going to wipe them out and spread their bones across the valley and let the birds eat their flesh. I'm done with them. Jeremiah said that. But remember, he's motivating a stubborn people who will not listen. How do you get them to listen? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's how Jonathan Edwards got a people who were so numb to the gospel to wake up. Sometimes you need vivid imagery to get sinners to wake up. Jonathan Edwards was so graphic in that sermon. Has anybody, did anybody read that when they were growing up? It was like required reading in my school. Um, he, in one part, he talks about how God loathes, God loathes you like a, like a spider that he dangles over the pit of hell. It's like, eh, get rid of that. He, he was just trying to get sinners to wake up. Jeremiah is doing the same. But so on the flip side of this, before we say, yep, God just wants to just torch this place, we have to also see the God who's weeping and broken over the weeping, hurting people. In other words, when we recognize that we have done crime and sin, rather than hiding from the presence of God, because he's angry, we need to see that God weeps for our hurt. We're wounded, so he feels the wound. And Jesus so much did so that he took the wounds upon himself and died on the cross. God is not going to ambush you when you come to him. You did it again. Got him. (laughs) I tricked him into coming to church. (laughs) That's not God. So if we stop at Jeremiah's sermon, you may think, I don't want my bones dismembered and spread around. I don't want to go to hell. But the other side is the side of God that Jeremiah is revealing to us because he needs us to stop hiding. You don't need to hide because the God who's asking Adam and Eve when they hid from him, Adam, where are you? You can read that one of two ways. If you, if you think that God's just waiting to get you, then you're hearing God walking through the garden going, Adam, where are you? I heard that as a kid. Brandon James McCulloch, that's when you hide. <laughs> they were... 
afraid. How was God speaking? Is that how they heard him? The problem with text is it doesn't give us, they didn't have um, emojis, right, back then to put in the text. So, you know, like, God's winking when he says that, or he's angry when he says that. We don't have that. So we have to guess. He could have also said, Adam, this is where we normally meet. Where are you? Where are you? The way that someone about to meet their lover is disappointed because they didn't show up and your heart breaks. Where are you? Which does God say to Adam? It seems that Jeremiah wants us to see a God who is so moved, who breaks with us. And we don't have to fear coming out of the trees and the leaves. Because Adam and Eve did. But they were still not willing to encounter God in spirit and truth. They started falsifying again. No, no, it's a woman's fault. It's a serpent's fault. It's also kind of your fault, God. That's, that's, that's not worship. So, friends, we... Sin, we're aware of it, we feel the nakedness, we feel the shame, we feel the guilt. Those are beautiful feelings because they're meant to take you to God, but we've learned the bad habits of our fallen ancestors to run from God. But when we feel these things, we need to adopt this position of absolute grief. Like 9 verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, goodness. We don't like that. We don't want to weep day and night. We want to just get out and go to something comfortable. But this weeping is honest. It's honest. And if we're to stop hiding, then the first step is to start being honest. That's what we have to do with God. When we come to worship, you are not really entering into true worship unless we are honest Honesty is the only way to worship the God who is honest with us. The God who is honest enough to show us who we really are. And we hate him for that? Why? He's showing us who we are so we can say, yep, I agree with your assessment of me. Let's change. But the only way to get out of hiding is to be honest. Adam and Eve left the garden. They continue to live in hiding because they weren't honest. Honesty is, yeah, you got us. I'm not as great as I thought I was. I want to change. And that sometimes means we literally weep. There's some real breaking that happens in our lives when we recognize I have been faking it for years or weeks or months. I've been faking it. So Jeremiah, one of the things he does is he shows us a God who weeps. He's weeping because he wants the people to feel to feel the honesty of their sin. You're a criminal. Don't go into the cave. Don't use worship as your hideout. Come straight to the presence of God. Eliminate the ritual. Eliminate the religiosity. And let God work with you as awkward and as uncomfortable as it is. And even if it makes you weep. Because you know what? This is not a weepy situation All the time, there is great joy when we actually begin to transform and start taking real human adult steps with God instead of these baby steps. 
There is great joy in growing up. So our, our call tonight is honesty or weeping is a great, uh, the way Jeremiah is talking about honesty is just, just let, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how ugly, let it go before God. Um, one of the things you also see is in chapter 8, verse 11. Um, 8, 11 says they, he's talking about the priests and the prophets from the verse above. He says that they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The slang would be, it's all good, it's all good. So we have, there's wounds everywhere. There's, there's pain. Sin has ravished us. We're, we're in its bondage. There's addictions. There's, there's egos. And, and we just say, it's all good. Don't worry about it. You're here. It's all good. That's what the priests and prophets were saying. But then God says in 812, the next verse, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Then the question in 822, is there no balm in Gilead? Now, Gilead was known for a balm that could heal wounds. And so God, God, Jeremiah, whoever's speaking, saying, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And the rhetorical question is, apparently no. So why then has the health of my daughter of my people not been restored? Why are they not getting healed? The answer is because they keep listening to message like, it's all good. Keep singing the songs, praying your prayers and reading your favorite passages. It's all good. (laughs) Peace, peace. And there is no peace. They don't even know how to blush. Blushing, weeping. It's all honesty. Jeremiah is calling them to honesty with God. That's why nobody's being healed Because they're hiding. You can't be healed when you hide. You can only be healed when you're honest. And that is true worship. So I want us to finish with a consideration of Hebrews chapter 4. You know this very well. If you don't, you should mark this up because this is good. Hebrews is toward the end of the Bible. Page 989, if that helps. That's not true. Don't look for 989. That's my Bible, not yours. Um, Hebrews chapter 4. So what he's doing in chapter 4 is he's talking about the Israelites. The first generation that came out of Egypt, they failed to get to the promised land because they wouldn't listen to God. Sounds like the people in Jeremiah's time. They won't stay in the land because they won't listen to God. So now the author of Hebrews um, is giving them an application. So in 4.11 he says, Let us therefore to strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It fits really well with what's going on in Jeremiah's day. Four, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. That means that when you read the Bible, you are not just reading prophecies a prophet told people 2,500 years ago that were of a Jewish race in the Middle East. It means, living and active means, those words spoken then to those people on that continent have the same power in this century on this continent to this people in this language. That those words don't stop doing what they did then. That these words are living and they're active and they're, they're going out with animate force to hit each of us in the places where we need it. That's what the Bible is. 
It's not just a textbook. It's a living and active voice that keeps moving through us as we let it. So the, the author's saying the word of God is living and active, but here's the, here's the downside, if you want to call it a downside, it's an upside. It's also sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Now, a lot of people don't understand the difference between soul and spirit, and we use them interchangeably often. That's the point. The word of God can get so down to the nitty-gritty of our lives, so specific that it can discern the difference between a soul and a spirit. Piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And here you go in verse 13. This is where we come back to the trees and the leaves. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Oh. You can imagine the people in Jerusalem saying, that's why we treat worship like a hideout. Because that's scary. Isn't that scary? If this is what it's like to be before God, that he can see through you. No, he can read your mind. He can see the intentions of your heart. He can discern spirit from soul. His words are living and active and they're haunting and they're hunting you. If that is what's happening, it is so easy to say, Mm, tell me how to fix my marriage. Okay, that's a great message. We need marriages fixed. But God, if we were going to God, he would say, here's why your marriage is falling apart. It's not because you failed to do these 12 steps. It's because you have this problem right here. You have this motive, which puts yourself first, or you have these thoughts which are polluted by these things and these influences, and he's getting to the very bottom. Basically, like he told the children of Israel, you are baking cakes for the queen of heaven. That's what it comes down to. You're playing patty cake with a false god. That's why we don't like worship. That's why, naturally, without guidance, we are prone to fake worship, to come and hide in the very worship of God, because this happens. We are exposed and naked before the eyes of him whom we must give account, and we say, no, thank you. That's not fun. That's why Jeremiah weeps his balls out unashamedly, his eyes out, balls, his eyes out, I was trying to say, wow, that was embarrassing. Um, he, he, He weeps his eyes out. The context isn't that great either, is it? He weeps his eyes out and he bawls and cries. Um, wow, now I just totally lost it. All right, we're done. Let's pray. I lost my train. He's, he's weeping. He's weeping his eyes out because he's giving them the courage to be in the uncomfortable place of being exposed before God. That's why he's modeling it. That's why God's modeling it. Because this is where true worship will lead us. And it's not, friends, please don't don't misunderstand me. It's not every time we gather, you should be weeping your eyes out. Because that's not real. Sometimes it's a celebration. Because we dealt with that junk before. Spirit and truth. Yes, it's scary and it's hard and it's vulnerable. But that is how we're healed. In modern language, you could almost say, and I'm, I'm, this is an interpretation, so take it or leave it, you could almost say that the word of God is like the surgeon's scalpel. Yes, it can slice and it can open, it can do some hurt, but it's not until that happens that the problem deep within can be fixed. 
So here's how this works very practically. We tend to read the Bible, and I don't know how you are, but sometimes we just get in the rut and the habit of reading it, and we're like, ah, I did my chapter for the day, or Pastor Brandon's teaching those chapters on Sunday, so I'm going to do my, you know, I'm going to read this through the week. And I'm like, I did it, but we never let it start to go into the hunting and haunting mode of what's going on within us. We don't give it that space to speak, because we might be, something's like in the back of our mind going, ah, 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 as you're reading, like, mm, that's, you know, my pizza or whatever. Um, or in prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. It's surely what was going on also in Jeremiah's time. Prayer is one of the best places for us to hide, because we basically come and we dump a bunch of things onto God, and we feel better, and we feel like we accomplished something spiritual, but we never let God respond. We empty all this out. And while we're vulnerable, because now we're unburdened, we run and say, amen, before he has a chance to fill or to speak. Why? Because the prayer moment can show you who you are and you want to run. So we need to ask ourselves, in whatever form of worship we're engaging with God, are we using it to actually hide and cover? Is it a tree and a leaf? Or is it, an, is it an honest coming to God to weep if we need to weep, to rejoice if we need to rejoice, because he wants to give us the balm of Gilead to heal us? Why are my people not healed? We know why. If you are not being healed, maybe it's because you're hiding from God and hoping the religious thing will do the job for you. Maybe we're afraid to be uncovered in the presence of God because we don't trust that he knows how to cover us with robes of righteousness. So, God, friends, does know how to cover you. And his garments are far better than the scratchy fig leaves that I can make and cover myself with. So we just need to trust him that he doesn't uncover us and expose us to say, ha ha, go to hell. He uncovers and exposes us to say, Oh, that's where it is. Here. Oh, that feels better. Yeah, doesn't it? Now try this cashmere robe or something. Better than burlap. Try this. Ooh, feels good. Yeah. By the way, that's what the king wears. Oh, I'm the son of the king now. Daughter of the king. Yeah, that's it. We are robbing ourselves. That's the irony. A den of robbers. And what we realized at the end was they were robbing themselves of healing and growth with God. So, do you trust him enough to engage with him honestly, to come out of the trees and take the leaves off? We pray, Jesus, that whatever false certainties we have bought into, we would discard tonight.